Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Take It Away, the complete Paul McCartney archive podcast. This is part two of our interview with Denny Lane. I know I said I wasn't going to talk about Go Now, but that live version of Go Now you do with Wings is unbelievable. <laughs> Especially Paul and Linda, like, just yeah. backing you up and you're owning it up there. Uh-huh. Yeah. I know. Any stories from those tours? Like, I mean, I'm sure you have a million. Oh, yeah. I mean, but, you know, the main thing is that that, that whole tour was so well rehearsed. You know, every day for, like, probably a month, we did the same every show. Day. Every day. Um down by where he lives, there's a place on the seafront there, um, some theatre. Of course, they kept coming in and telling us to turn down and stuff like that. <laughs> Seriously? But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but the whole thing was rehearsed as a proper band should be because it's going to be a world tour, you know. Yeah. And it's not just going in there and saying, OK, that will do. It was actually rehearsing every note, seeing, getting tight. Mm-hmm. And by the time we did the tour, it was easy. Yeah, so okay. that's the first part, and then, and then of course, everywhere we went, we got the same reaction. We had, we also had um, our own crew building stage. Yeah, everything was like we knew everything was going to be wow. coming, you know. Yeah. So you could really relax. Well, I mean, it was the first time we'd ever done anything that yeah. size, and and the audiences, it could have been the same place every night. It was almost the same reaction everywhere you went. Really? Yeah. The only sad part is I, I couldn't be in the audience to watch it myself. Because <laughs> yeah, that's like, you miss out on all the right. what you're really coming across at. But surely you've seen all the footage. and I've seen some sure. of that, but that's not the same. That's like watching a football game. You know? <laughs> all you see is the ball, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. guys spent a lot of time in the studio putting the album together afterwards, right? The Wings Over America record. Yeah, well, and actually, no. No? Um, mainly, I went and put rhythm guitar on everything because wherever there was a goof, like, say, the drums and the bass didn't quite hit it on the, on sure. the money, you know. I would say, I, I went in with Chris Thomas, who produced the album, and he did um, The Pretenders. Right. Um, so... He's really easy to work with, and he. Uh, I talked about. I said, "Look, the thing about this is that." Well, me and Paul talked about. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, I don't know how we're going to get around this. Some of these things. We don't want to go in and drop in stuff mm-hmm. because that's going to make it sound like it's not live." And I said, "Well, what I could do is I just overdub the rhythm guitars, like mm. double them up because it'd be thicker anyway." Yeah, but. Um, when it comes to certain parts that weren't quite tight, mm-hmm. I can just put a part in or a flick, a couple of little, you know, 
da dung da dungs that right. that pull it together. Mm. And that's what I did. Actually, that's where I met Lawrence at uh, Delaney Studios when I was doing that. So it was really mainly me going in and doing that. And that okay. was really the only overdubs. Apart from maybe some harmonies here yeah, and there, yeah. I'm not sure. But I don't think we'd ever, we'd, we, didn't, uh, we didn't really, you know, add to the harmonies. We probably doubled them up <clears> just <throat> to get a bigger sound like, a, like mm. ADT, you know, automatic double yeah, tracking. Yeah, yeah. So, stuff like that. It but was more probably just going through the endless amounts of material that took a while. Well, I think it was more to do with the film, the, ah. the actual visuals that they wanted to get. You see, it was made from five different shows. And that's why we had to wear the same clothes oh, okay. all right, on these particular gigs. It wasn't all made in one show. So the, oh, was, so was... the best possible version of each song was sure. there, right? So you narrow that down, and then it's easy to just go and tidy that up. Right. That's all that mm-hmm. was. Mm-hmm. Wow. One day I saw a man sitting sleeping in an alleyway With bruises on his face and a bottle by his side I was just a little boy I couldn't understand why I couldn't help it I ran away and cried And then I thought about it so hard Couldn't find an answer Till I looked up at the sky And saw a seal flying by Out across the bay He silently flew Who he was Thinking about what other people do Just put on his way And let sleeping dogs lie I do right there Anyone can fly Anyone who chooses can Take away the blues Anyone who pleases Can make the life One long cruise in the weekend of the Anyone can fly. Take it away, yeah. Well, here. I was learning to fly. Yeah. <laughs> I really was. Anyone can. <laughs> Anyone can if they want. And it's, but so... Yeah. So this was produced by Norman Smith. Yeah. Um, Hurricane Smith. Hurricane Smith, yeah. Um, did you have much production input, or is it the same you were saying before? No, it's kind of... I wanted him to do it because, yeah. he, he, you know, I knew him from... Actually, when he, he was... He used to be the Beatles engineer, right? And then he ended up being promoted to a producer. So therefore, he couldn't work with the Beatles anymore. Mm-hmm. That was his forfeit. So he became a producer. And the first, I think one of the first people, things, I mean, I'm not sure about this, but was Pink Floyd. So we were in the studio, um, and that was the session, I think, I was at, that Paul took me upstairs. There's a band doing an audition. Norman wants me to have a look in. So that was that. We saw them and said, yeah, this sounds good. But I already knew them anyway. I'd played with them before. I mean, no, I'd, I'd done gigs with them. I think I mentioned that the other night a little bit. To, yeah, yeah. To sort of in, show him that, yeah, I like this band. These these are like got a good following in the mm-hmm. underground in London. 
And uh, Paul went, yeah, cool. Because he, had, he he wasn't going out and seeing it as much as I was. Right. See. But, of course, we did go and see a lot of people together, by the way. We'd go and see Hendrix and um, A Loving Spoonful and people like that. Dylan, as soon as everybody came to town, we would go out with them. Mm. You know, it was down to the fact that the, the whole thing about EMI was that a lot of different people recorded them. And it was wasn't really a, we made it a rock and roll thing. Or the Beatles did, so mm-hmm. to say. Yeah, um, and all the people that worked there were all white coats. Yeah, know? I love the stories of Jeff Emmerich like yeah. sneaking the mics I know. next to the amplifiers, right? And drums. Because they weren't allowed. Yeah. yeah, I've been watching. I've been looking at some of those uh, those um, documentaries recently because yeah. he's come out of his shell. He was never like that. Mm-hmm. Jeff was always a little bit. You know, shy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean, but he knew what he was doing. That's mm-hmm. the beauty of it. Yeah, and it was also ever. totally like ready to do something that we could never have done. Mm-hmm. He'd say, We want this. He'd go, Oh, I don't know. He wouldn't moan. He would just <laughs> make a way, find a way of doing it. Yeah. Anyway, I've gone off the track completely. So I was asking about the production on that album um, for a couple reasons because it's got this sound that. Yeah. We've talked about before in the early 80s where there's this transitional period where it doesn't sound like 80s yet, Uh but it doesn't sound like 70s anymore. And in this case, it's it's very crisp uh, guitar rock. But there's this one track that's kind of interesting that's sort of disco-inflected. I always thought... I always thought I was buying somebody like you. Or something. Uh-huh. It's a great song. It's got like all players and the horns and hand claps and everything. Oh, it's yeah. very big production. Right. So I figured somebody I must have. remember that. Oh, yeah. That's Norman. He, he arranged and played a lot of that Played the horns. Yep. They're good. It's such a crazy thing to say. It's like I'm listening to somebody else completely. <laughs> I'm kidding you. Really. Seriously. Really. Wow. Because you know, I never lived with this into old stuff. You play it. You must the remember the girl thing. singers. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but the thing is that Norman was, I mean, he wasn't just an engineer and a producer. He's the man who had hits of his own. Mm-hmm. Hurricane Smith and... Uh, Oh, babe, I like that. Mm-hmm. He had that sort of thing. He had an image, and he was visual. He was a star. Now, his son, Nick, I worked with on a lot of my other solo albums. And um, that's how I got to get Norman out of retirement because he'd made a lot of money doing that his solo stuff. So he, he wasn't now a producer anymore. So Nick was actually the engineer on this album then. Yeah, and yeah. It, but he was also an engineer on a lot of my other albums. Oh, that okay. That's okay. what I'm saying. So uh, I see. You got to Norman yeah, via Nick in a way. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and, and pulled him out of cobwebs and got yeah. him out. But he, he enjoyed making the parts and writing the parts and mm-hmm. playing the brass. Yeah. 
John Hollywood on drums, oh, John, it says. Well, John Hollywood was like a roadie that played the drums that I knew. Chris Slade? Chris, Chris Slade, Slade. Well, Chris Slade was was the drummer who partly owned the studio that we did it in. That's at Shepherdson called Rock City. Him and Colin Pattenden were mm-hmm. um, part of Manfred Band's Earth Band. Okay. So anyway, he was available. You remember Shepherdson Studios that time was going through a transition period between being an old film studio and, and trying to raise the money to upgrade. Mm-hmm. So they rented everything out. The Who took the big house and they also had a hire company there. Right. They had a couple of stages there and, and a hire company. It's so the people coming in and out all the time. I, I bumped into Paul again and Linda where they're waiting for Stevie Wonder to come and do the uh, video for... Um, Ebony and Ivory? Yeah. Because they were always waiting for Stevie Wonder. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. I won't go into any jokes. But <laughs> Why not? It's all in the archive. Edition, well, there actually. you go. But the same, the same is, he's probably the only guy that's kept him waiting for that long and yeah. got away with it. But... Yeah, so Shepperton was a little bit like that. And Norman, as I say, you know, whoever was around at the time, whoever would come in and probably jump in on something. Right. But Chris Slade, uh, as you probably know, ended up with ACDC as their drummer. Yes. And has been for many years. But in them days, it was... And, and also Rick Wakeman was another guy that I, was, I worked with a lot. Rick came in and played for two days and did two albums just like that overdubbing what I'd already put down. Uh-huh. And I think on those two albums, Chris Slade overdubbed, took out my drums, which are all electronic, mm. took them out and put his drums on. And some of the stuff. Yeah. Um, but on this, in this case, you know, it looks like it's, it's all different people, not the same drummer or whatever. I mean... You've got a few different drummers and, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But again, I don't remember all the personnel so much. I just know what the scene was at that time. And Norman was, as I say, overseeing it. He was, he was, they you know, looked up to him. He was overseeing all of that. And um, it wasn't just me. I mean, it was whoever, whoever was there, he would, he would be running the thing. Animal One Can Fly, for example, the the album cover sleeve was mm-hmm. great original one, but you get all these reproduct, they rehash and re put them out and they so that's release not the original one. No way, that's like Cheeseville. That is okay. Yeah, that's so, Cheeseville. So that's the, original the original was original. Let, me see, let me see if I can. A lot find better it. than that, I'm pretty sure. Let me see if I can. We, find we figured it. you were not in on the cover for Ah Lane either. No, but no, well, it was my face. That's the good thing about it. It was your wing shirt. They couldn't mess it up. It was me and a wing shirt. But do you know that they actually, you know, they set it up so that the S 
is covered, so it's wing. I'm a wing, yeah, which is <laughs> makes sense. One one wing. Yeah. All I'm saying is that you know what happened. What's happened with these albums? But you were talking about it mm-hmm. earlier about um, why can't you find any of them anywhere? I mean, the fact is, a there was not a lot of promotion involved there. The company I did it with was not did, didn't have any money mm-hmm. put behind it. I put my money into the first two albums, this one, mm-hmm. and um, whatever the second one was I did with this bunch, but it was my money. So I had the control, but they didn't put any money to promotion, and that's what kind of put me off a lot. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember I was going in later and just doing the albums on my own. You okay. know? And that's why I brought in Rick Wakeman and Chris on those two albums, for example. But most of the stuff I played and everything myself. Yeah. And that was my experiment, in again, in the studios with a great engineer. Mm-hmm. And I always used somebody who'd either been a Decca or EMI for years but had to be up to date with the latest mm-hmm. you know, equipment and uh, techniques because I wanted that experience. You know? Right. So I did that on all the other albums, more or less. And then when I look back at it, I think, well, why didn't I just use that as a demo album and get do right, it then sure. properly with a mm. band, go and rehearse it? But I didn't have a band then right. that, that I'd rehearsed and been out on the road with. Right. So that was the dilemma there. But um, And I regretted that because when you listen back to it, you go, oh, yeah. The drum sound just sounds like synthetic drums. Mm-hmm. Although I did learn how to... Uh, program the drums in such a way. I'm, obviously, I played all the parts, but it was on a keyboard or pads, uh-huh. so that it would sound like a drum kit. So, mm-hmm. in other words, if if I was doing the drum fill, mm-hmm. I couldn't play the hi hat at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I'd have to drop out the hi hat as though I was doing a drum fill and okay. bring it in. So, are you we know, talking about albums like All I Want Is Freedom yes. and Lonely Road? Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Wings on my feet. Wings on my feet. I think that might have been a Rick Waitman job because he put on some great keyboards over the top. Because the sound changes. About it. The production sound changes a lot with Wings on My Feet. It becomes yeah. that kind of high eighties. I call it I high eighties. I know. Like high modern. But that would be that. <laughs> that would be yeah, Rick Waitman. Yeah, yeah. Rick because he came in and played some. I, you know, we didn't talk about what he was going to play. He yeah. just sat there and played it. That's yeah. how good he is. Sure. And you got to remember that he did a lot of work with Denny uh, Cordell or Tony Visconti who took over from mm-hmm. Denny. Who mm-hmm. I, we brought him over to work on my string band. Okay. That's how he originally oh, came yeah. to England. Yeah, he mm. was going to be helping me with that. In the end, he didn't do so much on it, but you know, yeah, he was he was supposed to be there to help me with the string part. In in the end, I I could have had the string guys making up their own parts, which is better for them. But you know, and then he did um, then he did band on the run. Mm-hmm. He did the right. other thing on that. So, with other couple highlights off of anyone can fly, we'll just mention for also for the listeners, like please check out and um, who moved the world, mm. running round in circles, right. various shapes and forms. I always thought, and the title track, Anyone Can Fly.
that album and this era, we go into 1985's Hometown Girls, which I had no clue about until last week, and I put it on. I, I love it. It's got um, a lot of slide, fretless mm-hmm. bass guitar work, yeah. like almost Paul Simony kind of stuff. Right. Title track's amazing. I know I recorded it at Home Place Studios, which is this great studio out in the country um, next to a pub. Mm-hmm. that we all hung out in, and oh. a lot of people recorded there too. So well, just read some of the personnel off. Maybe you have some stories. You said Eddie Harden. Yeah. Uh, Neil Wilkinson? Well, Eddie wasn't actually playing on this album. Oh, he's not on the album. He might have been on one of the tracks because we co-wrote it. Yeah, was it uh, Twist of Fate? Twist of Fate, yeah. So, yeah, that's right. That's a great song. That's one of his influences, style, you know. Oh, and he also played keyboards, a great keyboard, organ. Um, uh, B3 organ on Wish You Could Love he did all that stuff these are all session guys right? Yeah. Joe Hubbard was this amazing American who lived in England for many years he married to an English person actually he was in my band and went to Russia with him and he was this great player that could do all that stuff and uh, in some ways a lot of the parts on there are a little bit too over the top because, you know, it shows him <laughs> off as a great bass player, which mainly wasn't needed as much. Yeah, it was all session guys, really. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They put their own bits in. It wasn't me. I wasn't saying, play this, do that, try right. this. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I like to do that. I like to do that with bands I work with now. I like to, even if it's songs that, that they know, Wings or Moody's or whatever I do. I let them put their own bits in to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, they're influenced by... You get the by, variety and... Yeah, yeah sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I own note to note, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he brings up to date more. And they get, they're get they happier doing that. So that's what this album really was. I know, for example, I was in Spain. And again, I went to Spain again. And the guys I was hanging out with were his two brothers. They were son of a diplomat out there. and he, And they were like hold up in this big house because mm-hmm. they could be, you know, because the family sort of country um, seaside home. And um, they were good players, guitar player, and the keyboard player was their friend and they co-wrote one of the songs with me, Mestral. That's another one where it's, say, two styles of songs yeah, into yeah. one. It tells mm-hmm. a story, and then it goes to the... It goes into another tempo. Sort of it's an electronic. Like, yeah, thing. yeah, a little kind of a yeah, compilation type of thing. We don't know if you are 
Foggy Morning is a really beautiful song. Oh, that's about leaving uh-huh. England and saying, you know, if we don't get away, we'll never get away. Yeah. And uh, it's about a relationship too. Okay. And so you, you go, you know, you're going from one thing to another, starting mm-hmm. life again, starting another life. I wrote down that it had some Baroque pop inflection. Let's see what it sounds like. Changes though, these little cadences. Very sort of Henry VIII. See Joe Hubbard on bass playing another part. (laughs) He's somewhere else. else, based on the fact mm-hmm. that you miss your home. You're right. You know, That's not, a great song. I couldn't yeah, even just, believe that I, that I put that like, on. It's like, like California Girls, where yeah. they talk about that as a subject matter, but really the song isn't about that. Just It's about what you experience when you go away. You want to join a Spanish band. You want to be part of the whole mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. And the fact that they couldn't understand what you were saying and everything. That, that The whole album is based on that idea. There's one more song that really stands out on Hometown Girls, and that's Street, sung by Maggie Maggie Bell. Bell. Yeah, which is like a different, from a different album or something. Sounds like Tina Turner on that record. I know. Well, Maggie was in um, Stone the Crows with Colin Allen, who I said was on Mm LA, and Jimmy McCulloch. Oh, yeah. He was in Stone the Crows. So I knew Maggie. She was also being managed at the time by Peter Grant, and I have a connection to Led Zeppelin there. And he, she was a friend. And so I'd put the track, made the track of this. Um, I'd made the track, you know, myself. And I was going to sing on it. Mm-hmm. And it was in that key, you know, whatever it was, C, I think it was. And of course it wasn't P. 
perfect for her. It was too high for her. Hmm. But but so she changed the melody a little bit okay. to suit her voice. Because she was on the edge of her voice all the time, it came across as, you know, it was very sort of gutsy and, and yeah. that. But really, again, Street was... Big productionist. Big production, yeah. And um, she did a great job in it. But that was because I wanted to put it out as a single. Okay. But yeah, I didn't yeah. know I was going to use it on the album, but I did in the end. It seems why. a perfect single for, for 1985. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, but, but, right but it was there. It was recorded. I never did put... I took my voice off and put hers on, basically. <laughs> and kept that version, put that on. Of this album that you would want to bring back out and play? Well, uh, you know, I mean, I do know all, a lot of the songs. I mean, Hometown was the, the title song I'd, I've known and played that over a period of time for quite mm-hmm. a while. Uh, Wish You Could Love, I still do live mm-hmm. because it, it's to, it's to, um, I'm going out on tour next month with a band called The Cries that they're like a, a band I've worked with once in a while, but you know, they're not, I'm not in the band, they're just a bunch of friends and I started doing Wish You Could Love so that I could uh, give everybody a solo on stage right. which it, it is on there but it's not it's, it's just to go from person to person you know when you get everybody that bit yeah. right? because that arrangement lends itself to that and so I put that in the set because of that so you're talking about pulling songs off of old albums and then incorporating them into your set so you yeah. know, Chris you went the other night yeah and uh, Denny played Portrait you played That's Portrait right. in the set, so that's, that's from right. the next record. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wing, that good transition into Wings on My Feet from 1987. Yeah. And Portrait's a real standout track on that record, too. Yeah, it's a story about, you know, John Bonham. Portrait of an old friend who was gone, Memories Linger On, and mm-hmm. um, which inspired me to write the song, which is, you know, the storyline is, you know, the old days were the good days and... Like old clothes, you can't throw away what we had. Mm. Stuff like that, where, where where you keep a portrait like they do in Buckingham Palace of previous kings and queens, right. that kind of deal. And and you you keep pictures of old friends and memories and stuff yeah. like that. So that was the idea behind that.
And that's the album that Rick Wakeman shows up on, you said? Yeah. Um, Rick, as I say, played anything like very quickly. His parts were so good, even if they weren't exactly what I would have picked if I was mm-hmm. playing. Right. That's the good thing about it. You get another, you get another influence in there. And as I say, I love to play with people who are known for their instrument. And that's really what that was with Rick. And I'm still friends with him to this day. The other song in this album that came on, I couldn't even believe it, is uh, Caribbean Sun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, very influenced by reggae. I've always loved, you know, reggae. And so uh, the islands, you know, and we went out to the islands in Port Linda to hang out with all those guys, right. you know. That, that. And so we, yeah, Linda particularly was a big influence there because she was a huge reggae fan. And I think influenced Paul a lot. Um, so we we had this um, influence, if you like. And I was fooling around again. On a keyboard, mm-hmm. like a bass line. And so I obviously thought Caribbean, you know. And then some bright spark says, that should be an ad for Caribbean Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> because it's time to get away and live to fight another day. So let's run to the Caribbean. So. You ever played that one live? No. At parties, after yeah. a few drinks. <laughs> <laughs> song right after that, Blushing Bride, that's a nice song. I've never asked anybody to marry me, but it's <laughs> to do with, yeah, that approach to, you know, a song or a lyric like that. I was playing around with the song, and the guy, what was his name, David Kasner from President Records, because some of these albums, although they were produced by the company that owned the studio or managed the studio, Three of them were made by, or financed by President Records, which is a company of song publishers, actually, that owned the publishing on um, Rock Around the Clock. Okay. They're Americans, but based in London. And I know for a fact Jack Bruce did an album or two with them, Robert Plant, because I saw Jack Bruce walking out when I was walking in one day to get to talk some business. So, you know, he said, I really like that song. And I went, oh, I was just messing around, you know. 
And so we ended up putting it on. A lot of this stuff was influenced by sequences. You know when you get the keyboard you just play and it's got like strings on it or it's got yeah. some kind of... Yeah, sure. And you add whatever to that to build it later. Right. But that's the general feel. And probably it's because I had a keyboard that had that thing on it already. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That was A12. already there. Yeah, A12. <laughs> yeah. And I, let's use this one. It yeah. saves me having to make one up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where that came from. And what about the title track? I mean, it is also the name of the album, you know. So is that, I mean, obviously it's another wef- reference back to Wings, or are you... Wings on my feet, you know, flying away. Uh, it's just to say, Wings, I'm flying away from something. You know? Right, right, right. I'm getting into something else. I've got Wings on my feet. Again, my influence all the way through as far as, well, not the music necessarily because I, I sort of did half that album myself. Then when I left to go abroad, some session went in with Nick Nick um, Smith again and they finished that album off. You know, it was they like, finished it for you. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, oh, well, it's not bad. But, but <laughs> I did out. have a lot of influence on the album cover and the story because the songs were written in such a way, it was almost yeah. like a concept album. Mm-hmm. The storyline was that album cover. I see. I mean? That's a great album cover. Have yeah. You, yeah, you've seen well, that one? Well, the point is that, that, you know, I'm supposed to be this rock star with the Bentley and the big house, but yet there's a ghost of uh, the Amadeus, if you like, there, or me, say, years ago yeah. as a composer from the old days. Not saying that I was a famous composer. You but, look like Elvis. But I'm supposed... <laughs> the car. You do. It must be the suit. <laughs> but yeah, it's just to say, you know, this is a songwriter of this day, and this is a songwriter from the old days. Oh. And, and the ghost is there, <laughs> but also the drunk in the backyard is is the guy sitting on the bench in the park, you know, with a top hat on, typically English drunk, 
Well, tough, you know. So is that? I mean, we're skipping ahead, but that's totally fine. Yeah, as so long yeah. as we're on that topic, what is reborn again? What's the difference? Well, I didn't put reborn again. My album was just called Reborn. Mm -hmm. God, they knows. added some tracks too, right? Mm -hmm. God knows. Bonus, bonus. Uh, go now. Time to hide again and again and again and more. Can well, time. I wonder why. Yeah, yeah. Because exactly. marketing will sell it, but you know, wasn't <laughs> and, the, and that to me is completely, you know. Okay, so no, no. Reborn is what we're concerned with. Yeah, yeah. let's not so talk about reborn again. No, not no. reborn again. Probably so not. reborn meaning I was, I was this guy like the old fashioned look, and then I'm reborn into this guy. And, and, and at the same time, you go through the ups and downs, and you turn out yeah. to be this uh, this uh, like, let's get away from it. We'll have a few drinks. I hate the music business kind of deal. Right. You know? And then um, coming through to. Being, re being reborn into this other, uh, you know, image right. of a successful <laughs> thing. That just to say to people that that's what happens. Yeah. You are, yeah. in that sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, in all in time. the same, all in the same lifetime, almost. But right, you know, it's it's a reference to the past, of course. That album has great songs. In time, reborn, misty mountain, all of them mm. are fantastic. So that's. That was 96, that album? Roughly. 97, in, in, I think 96. it was. Okay. about Lonely Road, the next album from 1988. This is another one for me that's a big highlight. Do you remember the song Money Talks? Yeah, I do. How do you feel about that song? You know, there's a lot of people out of work. It's a song about that. You know, people trying to make it and knowing that, you know, you've got to you got to work hard, make money, you know, because it talks, it gets you places. You've got to invest back into yourself. You've got to... Right do things on the right level, you know. It's no different being in the band when you start off. That every penny you make, you put back into it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, even if it's just getting the van working. <laughs> and then the, the, the better off you are, the better level you do it on. It's exactly the same thing you're doing. That's it, really. song that closes the album, Peace Must Come Again, that has a really different sound from the rest of the album. Well, that's a Eddie again, I believe. Uh-huh. Yes. Right. Yeah. 
Well, I didn't write that song, and I didn't write the other one. So that he did. He, he, that was totally his song. Right. The production's really different, though, on yeah, the last track as well. Yeah. Well, he, see, Eddie, Eddie did a lot of uh, what they call that uh, new age stuff. You know, uh-huh. that, that channel that they had on television was like that, <laughs> that thing. And um, that was his style. I mean, he was working keyboards all the time, and it was all overdubs and that kind of new age stuff. And this is really what his style was. And he said to me, will you sing the song for me? And I said, yeah. Well, made itself on the album, you know, made its way onto the album, um, which I don't mind. You know, Eddie's a good friend at the time, and mm-hmm. uh, we hung out a lot in Spain, in France, sorry, and and in Home Place Studios, which is his house. So, um, you know, he helped me with some overdubs on my stuff, and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. stuck that on there. Everybody, it, it feels like that way. Sometimes, you know, you have to break away from the roots to go out and do what you got to do. Yeah. But then you come back as more than a black sheep. You come back as a hero in a way if you do yeah. if you do well. So it's that that message to people that you can just don't worry. It'll all be all right. You can come back and you'll be accepted. Mm-hmm. Huh. Produced by John Burns, did he have a pretty big influence on the sound of the yes. album? Yes, well, John is from um, the Decca background, mm-hmm. I believe, and you know he's one of those guys. That, it might have been EMI actually, but the other guy was Decca, or, or vice versa. But yeah, he was very good at getting the computer. He was, he was good at getting the samples up very quickly and doing what I wanted to do off the top of my head very quickly. Mm-hmm. That was important to me. I always sit around twiddling my thumbs, playing darts, you know, <laughs> like while they're getting it together, which a lot of the time we did 
in the wings days. I mean, somebody would be putting an overdub on and there'd be a few hours doing that or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you're just sitting around. But John, he was, he was an ace at, at getting what I wanted, like Jeff Emmerich a little bit with the Beatles. Yeah. So, um, and with Wings. So it, it wasn't frustrating at all to work with. And he would come up with say, oh, this is the drum, the bass drum sa- uh, sample that I like the most. And I'd say, well, yeah, but I don't want it to be like you put it on somebody else's record mm-hmm. all the time, so let's mix it with that one. Yeah. And we would do stuff like that. And he'd go, yeah. and he'd say, well, and then we'd go to the next thing. Yeah. And you piece it all together. And there were so many synthesizers that were ubiquitous and you would hear the same sounds on record after that's record. Right, that's yeah. right, that's mm-hmm. right. I mean, you were encouraged to make your own samples, obviously, yeah. and that was the idea. <laughs> like I say, it's like having an iPhone. You only yeah. know how to make a call and a text yeah. and yeah. You know, nothing yeah. else. It's got all that other stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, and uh, I did get into a lot of that through people like John Boots. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned to actually do a lot of that stuff myself. It's just really, it's time-consuming, You've got to put the, the hours in. But then when you get good at it, it's yeah. not that hard. It's fun. Mm, it yeah. is fun. Um, how conscious were you as you were going through the late 70s and into the 80s of sort of keeping up with the sound of the day? Was there pressure to do that? Were you excited about doing that? Or how was that working? I think we na- did it naturally. Just did Like it everybody else. I mean, yeah. again, like I told you about the Stevie Wonder story, whatever comes out, <clears throat> you, you incorporate Mm-hmm. Um, and and Paul's also very good at that. Mm-hmm. You know, he's a great communicator in that sense. Right. That what everybody else is doing, he'll take it a bit of everything and make it his own. Mm-hmm. You know? mm. Because he will put that time into it. He's got that kind of brain that he can that he can um, like take everything and make it sound original, which is right. a secret. These last two albums, uh, Wings on My Feet, and this one a really decisive production break from the sound on Hometown Girls mm. and on Anyone Can Fly. So I think it's it's the the beginning of that sound in the 80s where, as you say, com- the computers, computers, the sequencers yeah, are becoming yeah, yeah. sampling. And- Let me tell you, Tony Clark, who was the Moody Blues mm-hmm. producer, as you know, in-house producer Decker, got the job of getting the Moody's back out there. Uh-huh. And, um, of course, he was allowed to be experimental because they wanted to be. Now, people at Decca probably didn't want him to be. I mean, <laughs> same story. Yeah. Yeah. He had a boat, and I went on this boat with him, and, and in the front of the boat he had, a, a, a like the old Space Invaders, he had one of those sequences yeah. where you could take the squares and move them around. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> so I kind of learned that with him and experimented with, you know, where do I put the bridge, what am I going to do here, and put the music together and then put the words on afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So this was actually affecting your songwriting process. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. A writing process. And he had learned that by having the freedom with the Moody Blues success. But now he wasn't with the Moody Blues anymore. He was now doing his own thing, and, and I managed, well, he was a friend and, and also a, a neighbour at the time. He had a boat on the river, not far from where I lived. So I was like going down there and learning what he was experimenting with. So I took that and added it to, of course, you know, the workshop keyboard situation and started doing it all myself Mm -hmm. after that, developed from that. But it was really his first machine that influenced me to do that Mm. because I never really did that before, you know. 
Well, I'd done it before by joining bits together, mm. songs, but sure. w- within a band yeah. environment. Right. And, and um, like I said, you learn it as a band, you go and you record it. But when that is a writing process mm-hmm. and a recording process, it's all done there. You're using your memory a lot of the time, your influences, but you don't get the feedback from playing in a band. Right. Yeah. So you're never going to get that feel and you're never going to really... But then it's turned into another form of music, you know, another... Yes. another yes. That's what it's done. EDM, mm-hmm. hip-hop, yeah. different yeah. things. Sure, absolutely. Well, and there's a lot of traditional music that's now made with digital recording and an awful lot of digital editing. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? Digital filtering, digital reverbs, yeah. It might be a bluegrass album, but it's, <laughs> it's full of digital. great thing about making an album it can be a story mm-hmm. as a single is a short story and an album can be a big story but joining the songs together mm-hmm. that means different moods different key changes different tempos you know like i say yeah. like a set list and having and then, a thread of some kind to yeah and a story throughout and, right. and i think that's what i've tried to do with all my albums in some cases i haven't been that aware i was doing it but just the songs would blend the titles would be similar because of the experience of those mm-hmm. that's all yeah so. yeah after lonely road it's 1990s all i want is freedom great title track had a concept, a cohesive... Yeah, yeah. it was uh, about what I'd been through. You know, I'd been through a lot of stuff, and and those songs represent those stories. That's all. Mm. They, they, they touch on that story. All I want is freedom. You know, freedom is the freedom to be able to write and say what you want to do. Everybody wants that. Yeah. But, you know, you want to be True. your own boss to a certain degree in life, right? 
Well, you don't always know there's no such thing as freedom, <laughs> but you're close as you can get. Yeah. That's what it's all about. You know, it's so you know, all you want is freedom for everyone in this world we live in. You know, all I want is to see us giving all we've got and more. Yeah. So that's the theme that I go with, and then I make up a little story about each, you know, a version of that story mm-hmm. of that a little. So like, you know, it'll be three different short stories that all have the same thread. Right. Well, actually, I'm going to go back to something else. A lot of your albums are about freedom. Yeah. Wings and all, all the different titles that have wings in mm-hmm. it about escaping something. Yeah. Time to hide. Yeah. <laughs> Time to hide. <laughs> Which we have even it's, about. Look, it's, <laughs> like, it's a way of saying that this is my philosophy of everything. You can't do, can't have too much of a good thing. So you've got to be able to walk away from it, you know, at your own choice, to to not let it bog you down, and that's what happens in the music business. A lot of bands fold because they're forced to go out on the road yeah. and don't get a chance to go in the studio, <clears throat> don't get a chance to get enough sleep, don't get enough leisure time, and that's where the you know the old days, the pills to keep you awake and pills mm-hmm. to send you to bed came from. Yeah. That it kills you. So you've got to be able to say, no, I'm going to do this. And I'm not saying that I'm the best example of this because I'm just aware of it that you have to do that. Jimi Hendrix was kind of a friend of mine towards the end of his life and and he was a victim of that completely where they wanted him to go out and just be Jimi that everybody knows and he wanted to move forward. It was too big for them to allow that to happen and that's what... Did him in, you know. Yeah. So, you know, as I say, the freedom to be able to make your own choices without record labels or managements or whatever, or you know, you know, if you're the big name now, you'll lose it if you don't keep doing it. Yeah, is a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, it's not always easy to to stop. But what's a little stranger is when people get really big and keep doing the same thing. (laughs) Well. That's because, again... You have the resources to do what you want, but... It's not so much... That's not the problem. It's like even when the Beatles were like at their heights, you know, they still wanted time off. I mean, Paul has even said that we only had one day off a month. And that's what wrecks it all. And, yeah. the, and the fact that you're always expected to come up with the next big thing. Yeah. Right? You've got to stay current and ahead of the game. Yeah. Where's you out? But of course, that's basically what life's like. You know, yeah. it's like a product on television. If you don't keep advertising it, it's going to go down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the fact that this might be controversial, but you know, I get to the, I go to a Paul McCartney show once in a while, and I get to those last twenty minutes, and I yawn. He's going to do Hey Jude again, and he's going to do Let It Be, and I'm, you know, I'm going to just think about something else exactly. for a while. And I wonder why someone. Mm. Who could do? He, you know, he could go play his whole new album, but he just right. does the kind of Disney version of Paul McCartney. Because, because I think he's kind of his own worst enemy to the point where he's got so much fame from the Beatles, yeah. and that he thinks that everyone in that audience is that's all they want to hear. Yeah, right. Yeah. And he doesn't. He's, he's got that old-fashioned way of thinking of we're in a band. We're playing all around the world and we've got different audiences every night. But what he doesn't realise is that some of them audiences, the same people he played in 100 miles yeah. away, yep. and they all come 
So it's the same crowd coming yeah. to see the same show. But yeah. normally in the old days, we would have the same set. And yeah. that's what we would do. In the do. old days, yeah. though. Right. Yeah. So what I always think, you know, go out and get, you know, it's not like he can't do it. And he could do it really well, too. Go out and give us another show, which is not that yeah. so much, but yeah. more do it with an orchestra. Do it acoustically. Yeah. Do something that's... You like haven't the songs done that yet. You never play or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. play McCartney too, straight yeah. through. Right, that's synthesizer. Honestly, yes. I love it when people show up and play their new album. Yeah, like why not? Esperanza Spalding. That's what tour, I'm saying. Where she played her new album before releasing it, the wow. whole album every night. Well, and that's no, great. No oldies or anything. Just right, right, right. Well, David Bowie tried to do that, and the booty went off the stage. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, that was Sorry, then. <laughs> but now it's become a little bit more acceptable. That, yeah. and I think again, I always refer back to Pink Floyd. They make an album, they go out and tour the album, yeah. which is great, refreshing. They love it, and then when they're fed up with that, when they make another one, that's a good way to go about this. So. Yeah. I know that he could do that. Um, But it's that thing of him being a Beatle so big that he expects that everybody just wants to hear them songs. Say, well, we've heard them all a million times with a million other artists for many, many years, and you're the man who was out front who could say, well, I want to do what I want to do. And he he throws a few of his old songs, new songs in there. But in a way they get swamped because of the other stuff. That's right. And that's a shame. It's sort of like everyone goes to the bathroom when the yeah, new song comes right. out. Right, and you know. they wouldn't if he did an album. But that's, yeah. you know, something he probably will do. I mm-hmm. think he might get round to that. Yeah. That might be the next stage for him. And he's, but he's he's not in a position to do it, he feels, now. Yeah. You know, when everybody else is doing it, but he can't, because right. right. he's so big. A friend of mine went to the show he played in Chicago, <clears throat> and she's singing exactly what you're saying. She was almost bo- bored at parts of the yeah, show. Yeah. And when he would play a song that nobody knew, I actually have the quote here. He said, he's like, when you guys like a song, the phones light up like a great universe. But, but when you don't care for one, it's a big black hole. <laughs> so I think he's really concerned about yeah. the acceptance. Yeah, you you got to play yeah, them a few is, times yeah. before yeah. people start to like them, you know. Yeah, but that, like Denny's saying, it's yeah. the old, old school, right. 1965 mm, right. out they, there. They that. Play the hits. Play all the big stuff. I mean, we're using him as an example because yeah. of his sure. fame and, uh, yeah. and all the rest of it. Right. But really, he's a down-to-earth person in many ways too. Mm-hmm. So, And he knows, because he'll come out and be sarcastic about it. He'll say, well, I'm doing this. Even if you don't like him, I'm going to do it. He's, you know, he'll pre- <laughs> prepare you for like <laughs> being brought down. But, but, but he's still like deep down thinking, why don't I just go out and win the acoustic guitar and do a tour like that, like Springsteen yeah. did? Yeah. Which he could do, and that would be great. Absolutely could do. Smaller yeah, so venues. Yeah, whatever. Know. And, and he's, he's kind of touched on that stuff before, as we all have. But, you again, he has to do something that's, for himself, is going to be, you know, a breakthrough, really, from right. that same show. That's how I see it. Not just throw in a new couple of new Beatles songs or a couple of new songs from his old, his new albums, but do a completely different show. That's what I mean. Like Paul McCartney doing his first album with an orchestra would Mm -hmm. be really a start. Yes. Yeah. You got that, Paul? (laughs) (laughs) Giving you ideas again, Paul. (laughs) 
Yeah, Elvis Costello just did a tour of uh, Imperial Bedroom. Right. Oh, yeah. And he, I he didn't threw know that. some other songs in, but it was basically I bet Imperial that was Bedroom. awesome. Yeah, yeah that was, was really good. It was cool. I love yeah. it. But then he's not as famous as Paul, and he's <laughs> right. <laughs> so Paul's not worried about and, and his what fans if they don't like it. Yeah, anything. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What's People but, Magazine going to say? Right. Yeah. All you got to do though is do one, and then they accept yeah, it. Yeah. So that's you it. You have to get over it. That's right. So yeah, all I want is freedom. What great stories came out of that? Yeah. So yeah. leads us to Reborn in 1997, which we actually already talked about. A little right? bit. Anything else we, we did should more cover? or less. Well, I mean, only the fact that, um, well, it was the last thing I ever did, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a long time. It was 20 but years you ago. You've got to remember that I got out of the business, I never, to, by mistake in some ways, but mm. by default, just the fact that, it's hard to come back with something new after you've been in a band like Wings or, or the Moody Blues. Yeah, you, that's you, true. You, what do you do? So you've got to keep reinventing yourself at all times. So trying to make it is the, the time that you've really been. Right. But the minute you're there, you've got to like top that. Yeah. That's the hardest thing in the world to yeah. do, unless you do something completely different. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really what you have to do, I think. And... Um, you might get criticized to start with, but then they'll start, they'll come around, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is that why in, in 2000 you were working on the musical, Arctic Song? Well, that's been around for years. That, years, that, okay. Yeah, and that's why. It I'm, was around before 2000? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I started that in like the mid-80s. Oh. <clears throat> well, just after these albums I was doing. A friend of mine came up to me, he'd been up in the Arctic, he had asthma, and he was writing a book for the kids, um, University Press, Cambridge University Press, the kids of the Arctic Circle <clears throat> and their life and, and the pollution. This so is Chris only, Hill. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the pollution being, well, I, I, I sound like an old record saying this because I say it all the time, but uh, say spin it. a ball around. And the outside of the ball goes faster than the, the top and the bottom, yeah. in a sense. So because of that, it's the, 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 the momentum sends all the pollution to the south and north mm-hmm. pole. I see. So therefore, it hangs around an ozone hole. This is all stuff that Chris has relayed to me through this book yeah. that he's been researching, which obviously makes sense and access. I mean, he's a bit more of an academic than I am. So, mm. and, and again, he used to work with Peter Asher and the Indica books and things like mm. that. Um, and so he's more of a scholar like that. So he did this book purely as a, a 
kid's book, Journey Around the Arctic Circle, and then came to me with his notes and ideas for music mm -hmm. <clears throat> and some song titles, which I immediately changed into my titles <laughs> and his stories into my stories. Yeah. More so than, I would say more so than his, but I ended up having to write the music, the songs and the uh, storyline yeah. around what he'd given me. So um, that was it. So I, I took it into another, to another level. Like I took it into a Star Wars meets the, uh, the Inuit, right. if you like. Mm. Um, and so I made a whole new story up, which he then helped me to research as well, to add okay. to what I'd, I'd now brought to the table. And, and so I did it with 12-year-old kids, and it went from there to being on the shelf. I did it because it was their school play. And what school the, was that? Uh, Stonyhurst College. It was up okay. in the north of England. And like every year, they for the parents, because it's a private schools, they mm -hmm. put on a thing for the parents. And it just so happened my friend's kids went to that school. I had a business up there with him, studio, record label, Ribble Records. And they invited me to come and, you know, talk to them about this musical because he mm -hmm. said that, you know Danny's doing this and doing that which I did and then helped them put it together and we financed some of it got a sound system mm -hmm. lighting and all the rest of it and they did a production of it two right. weekends what sort so, of instrumentation? well it was me um, and it was a keyboard player a percussionist and a, and a uh, piano mm -hmm. but Sounds, you know. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, and and it was really the kids on stage, the twelve girls and twelve boys from two different schools, mm -hmm. actually, twelve year olds, um, and the parents. After these parents, this is the sweet thing about it. Mm -hmm. They didn't realise that their kids were as talented as they wow, were. Oh, that's nice. And so we brought out a lot of that. The guy yes. goes, I didn't know my kid could sing like that. <laughs> and then we went on to, we were going to do it with the next age group up because my partner. His company owned a theatre, but it was going to cost too much to renovate this theatre. It was like in bits. And um, that never happened. So it just got shelved for a while. <clears throat> so when I, what I say in the 80s, I came over here and we, uh, we got a um, citation from the Kennedy's <laughs> <laughs> building saying, you know, we, rec we, uh, we endorse your helping the environment and whatever. Yeah. So... We knew that um, one day we'd be able to do it again, but we just never got round to it, and life got in the way, as they say. And then, of course, it became the big thing, and everybody's into the environment. Yeah, so I did it with the University of Fredonia, SUNY, and it went well. I mean, it wasn't like the production. It was just the music of. And this was college students? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and... Uh, they're all very talented people. And this was before or after the CD? This, this is, oh, the CD was done way before. In, this when this I 2000. Thought, yeah. So well, this is I, a recent performance you're talking about. Yeah. yeah but okay. 2000, you know, I did the CD right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, when I first wrote it. Oh. Yeah, I did the backing tracks then. And had In the that. 80s? Yeah, which, I don't know which CD you're talking about. There's two. Okay, uh, I'm the one on discount. Give you the discount link. Yeah, if it's, it's the, the one, one with uh, with Jackie Dunkworth. Oh, that'll be um, that'll be the one that Paul Inder did, uh -huh. and he redid the, the the backing tracks. Probably. Okay. Yeah, he That's, made a kind of a synth orchestra. 
Probably. It's yeah. my, it's a, the first one I ever did was demos. Okay. And it was all me. Are these available somewhere? I think Nicky Hopkins had played a little bit on one or two of the tracks, but no, it was no. never released as a single. Have you ever seen the colors of the northern sky? On the evergreens, the climb of snowy mountainside of the dawn with its infinite Or the shades of What happened was I came to America uh, to join to put a be a member of a band called the World Classic Rockers, and my partner went back to England with Chris Hill, and, and they got together to re to do the album, but I wasn't there. Right. He used my voice on it. You sang <clears> on it, yeah. Yes, yeah, some of it. Yeah. Jackie Downwards was on it, who I knew from before. Who's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So they did a whole other version. It's not even in sequence, uh, title-wise. It's not the storyline. They did a good job of it, though. But it's not the original um, storyline. And mine was just a demo thing. You see what I mean? I see. Uh, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, well, the demo one is the one that I presented to Armand Petri uh, Mm -hmm. at uh, the university there. He's a visiting professor. But he's also a big producer. He produced all the Google Doll stuff along with Jimmy Hoyden, and, uh, who I've just worked with on my new record, Jimmy Hoyston. So Armand sort of took the demo version and he mm-hmm. orchestrated, or he and other people at the university yeah. orchestrated that. They didn't See, copy the... Mm-hmm. Paul Inder was the producer and player on the other one. Got it. And he was he's Le- Lemmy's son. Okay. So he was brought in to do... That album you're talking about, I believe. It's got, it's got, is this the one with the choir on Crystal Vision and all that stuff? Yeah, it's quite lushly produced. Oh, that's the one, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the one, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a huge production. Yeah, right. Okay, I mean, so I, they did that. It is synthesizers, but yeah, it, they did that in my my absence, but I quite liked it the way they did it. So yeah, you great. overdubbed your vocals later? No, they were already on. Oh, they were already on they from were, the demos. They were on from the demos. Wow. Interesting. So okay. you kind of added to that's that. That's really interesting. Who is yeah. this guy who sings Scrimshaw Carver on here? Oh, that's Phil Jones. Goodness it, gracious. It, Fantastic. It, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, and he, he's quite well known in Liverpool at the time. And, and he's, just a local lad of film theatres. Mm-hmm. lovers have a me, releasing her spirit from the bottom of the sea where we bones up the lights. It's 1883, I'm the ghost of the scrimshaw cover. Across the Greenland Sea For to hunt the mighty whale Hold steady, steady as you go Bring around the starboard Steady as you go So we all see daddy I'm 
over there she blows I heard the lookout say Off the starboard bow Not half a mile away And the sea turned red As we took his life that day Whale blubber and needle and the stone I carved a pretty picture on a piece of whale bone For to make some pennies for me family back home I'm the ghost of the Scrimshaw Carver with a whale blubber and needle and a stone I carved a pretty picture on a piece of whale bone For to make some pennies for my family at home I'm the ghost of the Scrimshaw Brought in a few friends, but yeah. I wasn't involved with that, as I well, said. Chris Hill was, and, and my Chris partner, Hill, John, yeah. John, you know, John Ash was. But, hey, they did a good job of it. And, uh, but, as I said, we still never got it off the ground. So the performance in Fredonia... That was that, that was, was orchestrated, and you had what a small uh, pit orchestra made of well, students. Well, yeah, it was really well. It was just yeah, they were on the stage. It wasn't even an orchestra. It was oh, just okay. a few of, mm. few brass, few strings, few okay. this, girl singers. And who did the orchestration for that? Well, there was Armand Petrie and whoever you know he worked with in in Got his it. in his uh, his class, I suppose. I see. And then. But I say they copied my version, mm-hmm. not that, not, not these arrangements. They didn't have that. Parts of this are beautiful, but other parts are a bit uh, overdone. Yeah, they yeah. are. That's what yeah. I'm saying. And and it doesn't represent um, what I was looking for in the first place. That's all. What were you looking for? What I was looking for, simplicity, and that's too complicated. Mm. And and also, when you are doing 16 songs that represent all different nations, not just the Arctic, that all have the environmental problems. In other words, there's a Japanese that's mm. called Setanaiko, which is the inland mm-hmm. sea. Mm-hmm. And that's about the old Japanese um, people, the, what they call the, the Ainu, and they, they have yeah. the tatters on the faces, those ones. Mm-hmm. And they were the original, you know, Japanese. They were the island ethnic. And they had their own style of music. Now, my thing was to try and emulate that I wanted that each like in the forest it would be the natives playing their instrumentation yeah pan pan flutes and drums and all that stuff so each song has a completely different uh, yeah some of this almost is like dance music or something yeah exactly it It does seem yeah yeah it it doesn't represent the actual story yeah that's the problem with that the story is these these animals and these people, this spaceman who meets the the girl, um, like the uh, she's the local like herbalist, if you like, you know, yeah. the, the land lover, tree hugger. Is that Elena? Yeah, Elena. Elena. Elena is a very very common um, name amongst the Inuit people, and they represent 
you know, they're like a, they're going out on a search to win a, a prize that yeah. gives them magical powers, right. blah, blah, blah. To, and then this other guy comes from another planet they don't know. is, And then he mixes with them and adds his powers to it. And they become this traveling circus kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they go from place to place. And then the songs, the song represent that ethnic race. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. That doesn't cover it. Right. Although it's a good album in its own right, it is. It's not the story in the yeah. way it should be told. There are some great moments on this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Elena, I'm gonna start telling the world how much of a hell of a girl I think you are. So do you have ambitions to get a fully realized version of this? Well, yeah, well, that's the idea of doing the Fidonia thing, was to see how far it went. And it was, yeah, it was good. It was like a very simple version mm-hmm. of what it would be if we did it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's definitely told me, like the kids thing did, it told me that it can be done, you know, again. Because the kids thing went well. <clears throat> so why, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? Yeah. That's the way I yeah. see well, it represented that, but with an older age group. And there's some real crowd-pleaser stuff on here. I mean, it really works as a musical. Oh, know. yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. It could do. But yeah. again, I don't want it to be any any talking. I don't want no. the old musicals. No, like no, Music, no, no. talk, music, talk. Yeah. The music and the lyrics is the album. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. It's, a, it's like an opera. Right. So there's no talking yeah. in between. Right. You know, an opera doesn't have seats, just all music. And well, all. you have things like chess and I don't know if you know the no. 78 War of the Worlds, Jeff yeah. Wayne War of the Worlds, and you have yeah. these albums that are like these through sung. You know. I know. Yeah, I it's know. really cool. Well, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Yeah. But this one has a short story. Obviously, you need story line to, for, for, the, for the visuals, you know. To, but the lyrics tell the story. Right. It's like they're talking to each other. And then the visuals tell the, the rest of the story.
It sounds like a really cool animated feature. You know, yeah, we already talked about that, but well, uh, again, if you want to compare it to something like The Lion King, which is not, you know, it was that was that thing. That was yeah. one way of doing it. Because of um, modern technology, of course, you can make animals exactly like humans now, and it can, they can interact. Yeah. But on stage, what we had with these kids, for example, we, the raven would be just a kid with with feathers and outfit, you know, to represent that cool that, that animal. Yeah. They weren't they weren't like yeah. so. Yeah, there would be a certain amount of that involved, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But because the animals are a major part of the cast, mm-hmm. that's, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. They they are represented, but they have s- singing parts or they're part of a chorus that sings. And right. then you'll get one guy out of that same cast will dress up in another outfit and become the, the ghost of the Scrimshaw Carp. <laughs> right. Get what I mean? I so love you're, that song. You're into Such a good well, song. it's a sea shanty, yeah. Yeah. But I wonder if. You know, with the technology today, you could make an animated feature out of oh, this kind of yeah, on the on the sly. Of course, <laughs> you, know? you could. But yeah. again, yeah. Well, I'm look. If one thing leads to another, yeah. if I my my theory is, if you go out there and you play the music first, mm-hmm. then people are going to go, I like that. Then somebody's going to come along and say, I want to put some money into that. Yeah. Right. And then away you go. That way, you're just getting the music across, which is very important. You're not covering it. With something else, yeah. And if the music makes it on its own, mm-hmm. if the music can tell away, the entire story yeah, away, without any visuals, yeah, your way you go. That's the first thing, um, because of, you know they they do suggest all the visuals that go with it, and, that, and then that, that the visuals is according to how much money you can put into it and, yeah. what, and what level you you do it yeah. on. You know, I mean, or or you could just be one of these you know lucky people that has like. The really simple thing that makes it big. <laughs> I know that's what you're hoping for. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know. Because <laughs> if you watch the credits for almost any major animated film, mm. hundreds of names I know, go by. I, know. I mean, it's it's yeah. multi. Master Suite thing was a, a load of songs that I had, mm-hmm. some of which weren't songs at all, but some songs were songs with lyrics and tune okay. and a melody. Okay. I was approached, and it was the same time that I was doing my uh, Lonely Road period. Lonely Road, yeah. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was approached by this company, Magnum Records, to do a new age, maybe came through Eddie Harding's contacts, I don't know, mm. but I suppose you want to do, and I said, well, I've got these songs, and I turned them into instrumentals, that's mm. all I did.
By the way, some really interesting guitar orchestration on Master Suite. Just having multiple guitars yeah. kind of filling out the arrangement. Nice stuff. A lot of the time I would have a theme and it would be just the tune, mm-hmm. you know. But then when it came to bits I was making up in between, that's when I would have a chance to like blow, jam over the top, yeah. you know, yeah. and and go along But also with, cool right. doublings and... Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I would work out, I'd have a basic thing and then I would add some bits here and there to make that, you know, a section that like a... To lead to the next section, I would add doubles there, or I would add harmonies mm-hmm. there, and then I would have a loose piece in the middle, or something like that, and go back to the to the structure. Yeah, right. That's that's just having fun in the studios. But but the whole point of that is that looseness has to come straight off the top of your head. You can't write it down. No. Yeah. You got to say, okay, I know it well enough now to jam with it, yeah. and that's what you do. chance of some kind of reissue project that's been happening especially with the vinyl resurgence well, a lot of artists are getting their stuff reissued on 180 gram vinyl and all my old stuff I'm, I'm gonna have a problem with that because i'm kind of in litigation if you like oh. with, the, with the people who okay. put all that stuff out and mixed up the titles and mixed up all the albums is there some light at the end of that litigation i title? hope yeah, yeah. But, mm-hmm. but as i said uh, to get the originals, you know, the tapes that they would be. Yeah. Um, well, no, actually, it wasn't tapes in those days, was it? It was more like... Uh, well, for Arlene would the, be, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was, anyway, getting those files together and doing all that, because they've done it and put it out, but now you have to remaster before you can do yeah, something. that's true. Which is what I want to do with the Buddy Holly album, and yeah. I've already talked to the office about that, and Paul's already, you know, said, yes, let's go ahead and do that. But... Mm-hmm. The point is the um, remastering of the first Moody Blues album, which did they did a really good job on that. Yeah. Cherry Red Records mm-hmm. and the box set. And that was really good because that was the first time I really heard those songs clean. Yeah. You could uh, actually hear the bass parts, yeah, actually true. hear yeah. everything really. Mm-hmm. Amazing how they do that. And that's like, obviously, it's the way of the world now. Everybody does that. Right? Yeah. Um, so I would want to remaster all that stuff. Before I did it anyway, once I get the other side of it sorted out, I'm going to like do the that. new mix and master of Sgt. Pepper. I put that on it since, mm. like, all the just noise is gone. It's, I know. it's it sounds like it was recorded a couple of years ago that's instead it. of 60 or 50 I, years ago, whatever it is. That's it. Yeah, I don't know about all that. Okay, all <laughs> right, <laughs> but yeah, sometimes you want it the old way, yeah. but but I like but, the new sound, I but I so do I in the car. I love to be able to hear all the parts, you know. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what thing. I mean. Yeah, and like the 5 1 mix, you put it on, you go, Oh, that's John over there, right, right. It's Ringo over I know. There. I'll buy it, I'll buy it. <laughs> I, I, I particularly like the bass parts on the Moody Blues album, right? Because right. it was called the Magnificent Moody's in England, and it was mm-hmm. a kind of a but. The bass parts, you could really hear them on the first mm-hmm. one. But yeah, so he made some really good parts up there, you know. Yeah. And the harmonies, too. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's the thing. You've got to remaster uh, to be up to date, really. Sure, yeah. sure. And I mean, that's what we want, you know, nicely remastered mm-hmm. versions of those old albums. Uh-huh. It would be great to have them on, you know, nice new vinyl. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. On, on, on the phone or whatever, the version I've got sounds yeah. great. It's mastered the whole thing right. yeah. with headphones on, of course. But, you you know, when you see hear off a of vinyl, what's that going to sound like? Mm-hmm. I haven't even heard it. I've never I put, heard the vinyl. I haven't put it on and played it. We yeah, we'll play. I'm it. on the road. I haven't got a t- yeah. <laughs> turntable. He's doing what he did in the 60s and 70s. He's on the road, man. Yeah, he doesn't man. have time. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> on to the next thing. <laughs> I realize that I've been in your eyes some kind of fool. What I do, what I did, stupid fish, I drank the pool I've been doing some dying Now I'm doing some trying So say don't mind, don't mind, let me off this time To this scene where my dreams were getting bad And who rides with the tide And who's glad with what it had You know, there's one song we didn't talk about that I want to touch on Say You Don't Mind Which was a huge hit for it was Colin Blunstone Of the, the zombies. zombies Yeah. So when we were digging around It looks like you did a version in 67 that was you in the string band, or that was you? It was a song that I was saying that I wrote as a something to audition the band. Right, right, right. To right. find the members and put all that arrangement in and then brought it to the studio. John Paul Jones had a string arrangement to it. Yeah. I had, I had another guy, Mark Solomon, his name was on acoustic guitar, who was basically a London folk artist. Danny Thompson on bass, who was from Pentangle, and Viv um, Prince on drums from the Pretty Things, were a pre Rolling Stones type of band, you know, heavy blues. But, um, and it all came together. Gus Dodge engineered it, and um, Danny Cordell produced it. It all came together really around the string parts. But, right. Uh, but, but, when they were added, I should say, because as 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 it was recorded, it was just a band, right? But then he yeah. comes in, adds that, and it was like, whoa, it's a totally different thing now. You yeah, know? it's almost sounding like a like a Western theme when you took the voice out. Yes, <clears throat> and it had that clip, the clip. Not really, but it's very very um, big and majestic. But again. Hardly any bass. It was a double bass. You couldn't hear it. Oh, that's right. And uh, and and the and the drum parts are quite heavy, but you know. Yeah, they're loud in the '67 yeah, yeah, version. Yeah, yeah. and it, it, they're not sort of simple either. It's like freeform almost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the tune is very simple. The arrangement was electric guitar with acoustic guitar. Acoustic guitar standing out only in certain parts. It wasn't playing all the way through. Yeah. It just had parts. In certain sections, like an orchestra, you know, like not just jangin' jangin' their their part. It was mm-hmm. really my guitar was accompanying my voice right. that was there all the time. But that was after, so that was that made it hmm. pop, right? So 
then, um, as I say, the string parts did it. So what happened was that it had a sort of an underground following that record. Because uh, I was, again, going out with the string band now and playing okay. that. And then um, Colin got hold of it without me knowing about it. He got hold of it and did a version of it. And when I heard that, I thought, well, it's completely different to <laughs> yeah. mine, except for the fact that he concentrated on the string element right. and made that the the theme, really, of the mm -hmm. whole song. Part, yeah. mm -hmm. So, And that was great, because I don't like it when they copy you. You know, even though we tried to copy, say, the demo of Go Now to a certain degree, you always can not, you cannot sort of avoid that. Yeah. But, you know, he did a totally different version, yeah. that backing track-wise, but it did mess up a couple of the words. It didn't get the words quite right in the middle yeah. section, but it doesn't matter. It just <laughs> happened. just so happens it, it gave it a different... I don't know, theme in the middle yeah, than what yeah. mine was. Still mine was the royalties. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> mine was, to, to you I've lied and suffered inside, say you don't mind. Yeah. And he says, to you I'm blind, something inside, say you don't mind, which doesn't make any sense. And I told him about this. <laughs> I told him about that years later. He says, too late now. That's <laughs> so a go. great set of lyrics, especially the oh. fish I drank the pool oh, and all yeah. that stuff. It's a bit... It's <laughs> Set stage for our undying love. We share love, but not quite what we were worthy of. Thing we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on? Oh. Well, yeah, well, the album that never made it, yeah. Valley, Valley of Dreams. Oh, I don't think I even know uh, about, don't that know one. about that yeah. Oh, well, you haven't because you, uh, it's not out yet. It's okay. been on the shelf for a few years again. Oh, no. In well, progress or it's done? and It's, it's done, finito. Uh, We're trying to get it out now. It was ahead of its time in some ways because the guy I did it with, the guy Vinny, who played drums on it, also produced it, co-produced it was really, really you know, advanced in his thinking the way, and, and he experimented with a lot of sounds. Mm -hmm. But it was basically me, him, and another guy who played bass and copied more or less my demos, but added his stuff, same as Vinny did with the drums. So they put down as a three-piece band so I could get the three-piece vibe, and then I added the other stuff. So, but it's called Valley of Dreams. It's a story of an Englishman coming to America, starting in the islands, more or less reggae, coming from England, sailing across to, to America in a sailboat. That's the second song. Um, they, they all kind of have, have a theme again in the lyric and in the, I see. So in another the titles. Loose another, concept. Yeah, concept. Yeah. But, it, but it's about an English person's influences when you come to America of all the different songwriters and, and stars of music. Oh. Mm. Get what I mean? Yeah. So each, each 
place you're in in America, you're picking up that style of music. It's a little bit like Arctic Song. Again. Right, right. So it's it's style-wise very diverse. Yeah, yeah. And it's just called Valley of Dreams because it ends up in Los Angeles, which is the Valley of Dreams for right. everybody trying to make it, and 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 Vegas. So we, as I say, each song represents a different style of music. Rough idea when it might be coming along. I'm hoping to get it out in a couple of months. Couple of months, yeah, yeah, that's, that's but it's been yeah. it's been a while getting to this point. Okay. And, uh, but as I say, it will it will time what everything else I'm doing with everything else I'm doing, which yeah, is right. this single, and see what happens, and then it'll yeah. come out. But so I mean, I believe in all that. There's nothing. There's no timing on everything really. And sometimes, like Arctic Song, it might be the better time to get out now than then. Yeah. So. stuff you've been asked about about wings are there any contributions you made that maybe you haven't been asked about or that you just like to point at that maybe people don't know about songwriting things arranging things contributions on yeah. wings records well yeah. you know generally speaking i was especially band on the run you know, mm-hmm. i was the only person yeah, playing. you guys made that record yeah, yeah. while he was playing drums yeah. but mm-hmm. uh, especially I'd make my own harmonies up, for example. So, okay. Stuff yeah. like that. Uh, or, um, yeah, decide what instrument I want to play on it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That 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 would be it. Any cases where you pushed a song in a direction it wasn't already going? or? Well, I mean, there was things where Paul would, like, for example, I think on Wildlife, he said something, bit bop, you know. He says, <laughs> uh, it was like a, it was like a, just a jam. And he said, well, I've got to, I think he said, I've got to write some lyrics. I can't remember exactly, but I said, well, I like what you're doing there. You know what I mean? He's like, well. We have you to thank for a bit, Bob. Well, in, in some ways, I don't know if it was quite like that, but I, I was kind of saying, yeah. And he probably said, well, in that case, I'll keep it like this. Yeah. yeah. You know. Well, Denny, thank you so much for coming out, taking the time. Whoa. We want to let everybody know that Denny is going to be on tour in September. He's playing Ohio, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, and Texas. And check his website. Follow him on all the social media pages. He's out there. He's doing it. Apparently he has a new album coming out. <laughs> yep. That's, I hope. Yeah. But anyway, uh, also September 30th, I'll be back in Chicago. Oh. With Taylor Sylvester from the Hollies. Okay. I'm okay. doing a show with him. Cool. Yeah. Check his website for all those tour dates, and thank you guys all so much for listening today. <laughs> well, hey. I 
have it folks we did it we made it through both parts of our exclusive denny lane interview this half was something entirely different in my opinion than the first half we really dug into denny's solo album and discussed songs and records and stories that maybe none of you have ever heard before some stories perhaps that denny's never told before yeah yeah it was a real honor and a treat to hear some of these things. What were some highlights for you, Chris? Well, I really enjoyed talking to him about Hometown Girls, his album from 85. Loved that record, yeah. Yeah, and he was talking about that as a concept album, and he illustrated for us several times how the concept plays out in the album, and I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, some good material on there, especially the title track, Hometown Girls. Yeah, I also, I mean, I completely agree with you. That album was just a gem to find and to be able to discuss with this guy. And he hadn't heard some of these songs since he recorded them back in in the 80s or the 90s. Absolutely. And you know what? This sort of thing doesn't surprise me much. We've talked about artists who work at a rapid pace, who yeah. are on a schedule, who are dealing with deadlines. The work accumulates and the artist doesn't necessarily know every millisecond of it the way that... No you know, those of us who are interested. Like, what is the real value of a record then? Not that we need to wax philosophical, but he even mentions in the podcast that records were always promotional tools. And maybe these guys just saw it as that. Well, I got to get my... Yeah, I mean, I do think there were opportunities for purely for recording artists in those days that don't exist now. I do think that was a thing. But he's right that it was never a utopia for recording artists. And right. that, yes, records were a way of promoting your live act, which is where you made most of your money. That's right. certainly always been the case. It's Absolutely. just gotten very it's just gotten very extreme in the modern era. Correct. Another highlight was when he was talking about Paul. He brought up stories about Paul that I had never heard. And the whole dialogue you both got into about, hey, man, play McCartney. Play McCartney, too, with an orchestra. Like... I'd really like to hear from the man himself on that one. Yep, so would I. Yeah. What did you think of his musical? I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was quite well done. He didn't seem to care much for the CD released in 2000. No. But I thought that was pretty well realized for what it was. Yeah, absolutely. I could see, though, that you would want something, well, with the tracks in the proper sequence, for one thing. But yeah. I could also see that you would want something... Maybe not quite as dated sounding. But listening to the handful of demos from Arctic Song that he gave us, those were quite tasteful. A lot of these songs need to be, like he said, he said remastered. They need to be remixed and remastered. They need to be up. They need... 
Well, some just need to be remastered. Yeah, yeah. things like uh, things like Ah Lane and Anyone Can Fly. Somebody just needs to get the two track master and do a nice job mastering it, and it'll be fine. Right. Yeah. I really would like to see that reissue series I was asking yes. about. That really ought to happen sometime. Yeah, Ah Lane, Hometown Girls, Anyone Can Fly, the musical Japanese Tears. Japanese Tears. Yes, we did find out that. We don't have easy answers to our questions about why certain tracks were left off, why certain things were relegated to B-side versus album track. We're probably not going to get straight answers to any of that stuff, you know? No. And maybe that's okay. Maybe this is just, hey, this is the way it worked out. We're digging through history trying to get questions. This is just what happened. And these guys, imagine being Denny or Paul or somebody being like, hey... What happened to your demo from 40 years ago? Or <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Why isn't it like this? Uh, okay, nerd, relax, you know? Yeah. yeah. But he was, he was very humble and kind. Well, it was certainly a great experience to interview Denny Lane. And I think this has been a great supplement to our, our project here in making the podcast. Absolutely. This is Ryan Brady with Chris Mercer. That was our Denny Lane interview. Thank you very much for listening.